invite you to turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3. Before we begin, let me pray for us. Oh God, your word is living and active. Your word is true. Your word is sufficient. And so we pray this morning as we come before your word uh, that you would speak to us. That through the words that you have given to my mouth, that it would be an instrument of you. That this morning I would declare your words. And that each one of us, as our hearts are receptive to hear you, that we would uh, hear and, and respond to you. That we would honor you how we listen. We would honor you how we uh, approach your word, how we believe your word, and how we live out your word. Would you help us to do that this morning, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Mark chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is what God's word says. So Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed. From Galilee and Judea, and from Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him, and they cried out, You are the Son of God! And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach, and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name uh, Boanerges, and that is called the Sons of Thunder, Andrew, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that he could not, they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. Back in verse 7, it just is a change of scene. Jesus withdrawing with his disciples to the sea. And there, a great crowd followed. A great crowd. It was great in a number of ways. Great in terms of its size. The amount of people that were there. We don't know the amount, but it was likely in the thousands. Because later, as we see, he had crowds often of the uh, 5,000 uh, uh, on the mountainside where they, they fed them with that fish and the loaves. So a great crowd followed. And not only great was its size and just the, the magnitude of it, but great was the reach. How far these people came from. From Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. From all over, from thousands of miles in every direction, they came. And it's incredible to think, because yeah, we can hop in our cars and 
drive a couple of hours and we've gone hundreds of kilometers, then it would have taken days journey to get there. The, the reach of this crowd that came was great. It was incredible to see how many people had come from so far. Think of that today. What do people travel so far for? Well, you have people travel so far to fill a stadium to see sports. Thousands of people will travel to this place to ooh and awe at athletes. Thousands of people will travel to, to hear a conference speaker. Thousands of people will travel. But the travel is easy for us. Would you travel to a Jays game if you had to walk? Would you go to Toronto for a Jays game if you had to walk? Likely not. What if you had to ride a camel or a donkey? Still likely not. And that's not even that far. What if Jesus was there? But you'd never heard of him. Would you do it? It seems like impossible. If I told you that a guy named uh, John, I don't know, I, I can't even come up with a last name on the spot that's not a character or something, but there's a guy named John, and you should go and see him, and he's in Toronto. Are you going to walk? Like, what? Why do I care? Why would I walk to Toronto? Why would I even drive to Toronto to see John, and I don't even know who this guy is or what he's about? Well, why would this crowd come from so far? It's actually quite sad. It's quite sad in this situation why they came from so far. Look at the reason that is given there. It came at the very end of verse 8. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, all that he was doing, they came to him. And we know that indication of what he was doing was the healing. Those who gathered here were all these people who were sick. And needed healing. They, they came not because they heard what he was preaching. They came not because they heard what he was teaching or even what he was claiming about himself and what he taught, right? Because the Pharisees saw that. In, in, in Jesus' teaching, he's, he's claiming to be God. That's not why the, the majority of these people came, according to this text. This great crowd that gathered came because they heard what he was doing and they pressed around him. There. I don't know if you can picture the scene, if you've ever been on a packed bus or subway or in a packed crowd where it is so packed, like you're like getting pushed over sometimes. That's what it was like. It was almost a stampede to try to touch Jesus because they were so desperate. You see that Jesus needed protection. Look at verse nine. He said he told the disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd lest they crush him. Interesting, in other circumstances, the boat was there uh, often not only to not be crushed by the crowd and for people to try to touch him, but he would go to the boat so that people weren't distracted with trying to touch him and get healing so that he could preach. And there would be a natural amplification from the water up the hillside. So he said to them, get the boat ready so that they don't crush me. There's no indication he used the boat in this circumstance. But you just, you just see that there's a stampede. There's thousands of people trying to climb over each other to touch Jesus. To touch him. Like he's some miracle man. And if I just touch the fringe of his garment, right? There's that woman with a bleeding disorder. She has the faith, though, to believe I can be healed if I just touch him. So, so many of these people had heard this is what Jesus is doing. 
that this is a miracle man. Whether they believed his claims, whether they even wanted to listen to his preaching about the gospel of forgiveness and grace, they were there for healing. And so he was concerned to say, they might actually crush me physically, have a boat ready. If it gets too heated, I'm going to have to go to the boat. I'm going to have to get away. It's interesting to think what this detail teaches us. Well, what does this help us to picture? Not only the greatness of the crowd, so many people. If this was only five people, if this was only ten or even a hundred people, he wouldn't have been like, oh, well, I'm going to be crushed. Like, you can easily escape. This was a great crowd. But it also shows us the desperation of the people. The desperation. They were there and they were not just going to line up single file to talk to Jesus. They were pressing in around him. There was desperation in their lives. It's incredible to think and picture those people who were so desperate in verse 10 for healing. Because it says, for uh, they had gathered all around because of the crowd. They were going to crush him. It says, verse 10, for he had healed many people. Four. So the reason they were in there getting near to crush him is because he had healed so many other people. So that all who had the diseases pressed around him to touch him. They were seeking this physical healing. Something wrong with their bodies. They were seeking it from him. You can just picture that crowd. You're sick and you know this man can do something. And you've heard and you've seen. Maybe you saw the guy five minutes prior just get healed. And you know that you've been suffering your whole life. There's desperation. I need to get to Jesus. I need to touch him. But their desperation was sad because for most of them we're not even sure if it was a a longing to be made new internally or if they just wanted relief from the pain escape from the situation their desperation changed them it it changed the way they acted many of them probably acting like animals climbing over top of each other pushing people out of the way for what for themselves They were pressing into Jesus with no concern of his safety, obviously. They just needed to touch him because that's the the healing thing. Pushing people, just this buzz. Some people filled with hope, others filled with sadness because they knew that they could never reach him. Jealousy at others who got healed and, and anger because they didn't. Just think of thousands of people with all of these heightened emotions Pressing in, trying to get to one man. It's sad. The amazing thing is, Jesus could have stood in the middle. He could have stood on the boat and said, you're all healed. Isn't that incredible? He could have literally stood on the boat, not touched anyone and said, every one of you in this moment, you're healed. If you're blind, open your eyes. If you're deaf, you can hear. If you're lame and you can't walk, stand up. He could have said it. It's incredible to think of the power of Jesus, but yet he did choose to remain among the crowd. He had this backup plan of the boat, but he stayed in the crowd in mercy and love to be near to these people. These people who many of them maybe are outcasts, untouchables, and he stayed near. He wasn't afraid of their sickness or the disease, but I I can't imagine the people there who, who likely live their life thinking, Someone with a disease is so unclean and they ought to stay away from me. And now you're all pressed in like sardines. What was going on in their hearts and their mind? Was there fears? 
that they were going to get somebody else's disease. That's the way they thought of all diseases back then, of disabilities. Oh, don't get close to me. I'm going to get your disability. Like it's, it's crazy to think of the mentality of all of these people who were fanatics. But was it for the right reason? And, and even now, as people, anyone who flocks to the idea of Jesus, what for? What for? What are they fanatical about? What kind of healing do they seek? Is it merely an escape from a situation? And sometimes maybe that's at our own fault for preaching into people's lives and say, oh, you see the situation you're in? If you just came to Jesus, right? And maybe that's our own fault for, for leading people to this kind of thinking. Like, oh, just come to this healer, man. Just come to this guy who's going to help you escape the pain or help you escape the situation. You don't have to feel that anymore. Is that what we present Jesus as, is this man to come to for escape? Because many of these people, most of these people, likely were just there for escape. And then you think of Jesus. In the middle of this crowd, thousands of people, maybe as far as you can see, pressing in, fighting, coming near to him, the noise. But he, knowing every single person there, he knew them all. Every single one. He knew the one in the back who could never ever get to him because they couldn't walk. He knew them. He knew them by name. He knew their hearts. He knew their sickness. It's incredible to me to think of Jesus in that moment. This is not just another man standing there being famous like some actor who's getting crushed by the fans. This is Jesus who had the power to do exactly what they were seeking. But he also had the insight into these people's hearts and their thoughts it's incredible to me as he stood there thinking he knows exactly their motivation for coming to him good or bad he knows their motivation he, he knows their lack of understanding if they don't even understand who he is or understand god he knows that he knows their sin when they're they're seeking physical healing and, and uh, freedom from a physical ailment, he knows the sin that plagues their hearts. The very thing, they, they, the greatest need they have to, need of deliverance from, he knows it. And yet, how many of them are mentioning that? Like, I got this bitterness in my heart, Jesus, and I need you to forgive me. It's highly unlikely. They were there as this great crowd because of the physical element. And that there's Jesus... Merciful and kind and compassionate. He doesn't rebuke the crowd. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't say, I'm too important. Don't you know who I am? He doesn't have a, a montage of security guards creating a, uh, a whole space around him. No, he, he's almost being crushed. And that's not the problem. The problem is their motivations. He sees these people's lack of love for God. That they're just there looking for a, the next fix or the healing. He sees their lack of love for him. These people don't even know him to love him. It's incredible. He sees their, their, their lives in a flash and they don't even know that. And yet he is merciful as it says that he healed many. He healed many. So great. But it also doesn't mean that he healed all. I know some translations might say the word all, 
the word all is not there in the Greek. And so it's, it, he's able to heal all, but he, he healed many that day in mercy. He could have chose to say, your motivations are all wrong. And you're only here for a quick fix. You're only here for a sign. Go. You got it all wrong and your, your lives are a mess. Come back when you've figured out that you have a great need in your heart. Come back then. But he doesn't. He is merciful to heal and, and relieve some of their sickness, relieve some of their pain and their circumstances. He's so merciful to these people. And then verse 11 is, again, this introduction of these unclean spirits. Already in Mark, there's been a number of occasions where these unclean spirits, demonic spirits, evil spirits, come and, and are vastly aware of who he is. They know who he is. So that's the thing. All these other people, maybe piling on, who got a you know, broken arm, they have no idea. There is no uh, spirit and discernment of who he is. But yet these evil spirits were well aware because they knew, standing before the God who uh, made the universe, that their spirit trembled in fear, in awe. It says, look at verse 11, when, whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him. Like a recognition of his authority, they fell down. They didn't worship him, that's for sure, but they indeed did declare who he was. They spoke truth of him. They cried out, they shouted, they screamed, you are the son of God. It's exactly like that uh, young girl uh, in Philippi, right, where, where Paul's dealing with this girl. He's just following the apostle Paul and shouting and screaming and, and it's a demonic spirit in her, but she's shouting true things. It's incredible. But yet, in that circumstance and in this circumstance, Jesus strictly ordered them to be silent. This is now not the first occasion this has happened in Mark already. He has silenced them, even though they're speaking something that's true, right? They said what is true. You are the Son of God. And that's so incredible to me because... How many people do we know that say, yeah, I know who Jesus is? And I can quote some Bible verses for you. These demonic spirits knew the truth. They knew the right things to say, but they were still far off. They were not welcome in, in Christ's presence. He didn't call them in. He didn't say, yeah, you know who I am? You're one of mine. You're a disciple of mine. He didn't. Instead, he silenced them and he cast them out. He, he, he put them off. He strictly ordered them not to make him known. Why would that be? If they're declaring the truth about who he is, the Son of God, the Messiah who has come to save sinners, why would he want them to be silent? It's because no one believed the demonic spirits. They told enough lies that now if they tell the truth, it's just another lie. And, and they do not have the right to be declaring the truth. They're liars. It's like the boy who cried wolf. No one finally believed him when the wolf was there. So these demonic spirits are lying. Their, their father, the devil, is, is the father of all lies. Lies all the time. Manipulates. Gets people to do what they want based on lies. And so now that they have the truth, what would people take from that? Is this just another manipulation? Oh, you say he's the son. You, you, th you, you think we should worship him? Jesus must be the devil. If the demons and the evil spirits are the ones falling down and saying, this is the Son. This is the Son. Well, 
they're likely thinking, everyone who had spiritual discernment would likely be thinking, that must be the devil. That man must be full of the devil. And so Jesus silenced them and said, as much as the, the words you say are true, and you know the truth, you be silent. Because it will lead people astray. It will lead people astray. And so he, he silenced them, which is so interesting. So there's this, now a great contrast as the story continues. There's these who were coming to him for healing, and then the, the, those with unclean spirits that he cast out. Now look at verse 13. And he went up on a mountain and he called to him those whom he desired. And so there was people who had come to him naturally uh, because they naturally wanted what he had. Healing. Physical touch. And then the unclean spirits were there calling out and he shoves them away. Now he is calling people to himself. The disciples as they are known to be called. And of course, it's interesting because it tells us um, that there's 12 of them. He appointed 12 in verse 14. But there have been way more disciples than that that day. People who are actually coming to him, people who are actually expressing genuine faith in who he was, um, or, or believing or, or wanting to trust in him as the Messiah. But here there's these 12. It says, he called to him those whom he desired, those whom he wanted. He called them. In Luke's account, it's interesting because uh, prior to this calling, in Luke's version of this story, uh, in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, it reads this way. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And then when day came, he called his disciples, and he chose them from the twelve. Uh, chose them, sorry, the twelve. And so he was, in Luke's account, he was praying all night long. He was in communion with God all night long. And then he comes and he calls those he desired. Those he desired, those he wanted. Incredible thing to know that when God called you, he desired you. Before God calls us, we, we come to this recognition that we are so undesirable. We come to the recognition our, sin, our heart is plagued with sin and stained with sin. We are not desirable to other human beings. Man, we're selfish, let alone to God. We're not desirable, but yet he desired you. He desired them. It pleased him to call you. It pleased him to call these 12, which is so incredible because Judas is included. And yet he desired to call him. He desired to bring him in to this intimate relationship with himself. This word called is the same word as summoned. This is a judge who summons someone to the courtroom. They must show up. So Jesus summoned these disciples. And we know that um, Jesus is the one who called them, chose them out, that they didn't say, pick me, I'm special. Or, yeah, we've been hanging closest to Jesus and we've not kind of asked him for anything. And so, you know, we've appeared to be the select choice or the, the great candidates to be his chosen few. No, Jesus says in John 15, 16, he says, 
You did not choose me. He says, but I chose you and I appointed you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. I called out to you. I appointed you. John 15 carries on and says that you should go and bear fruit and you should, uh, and your fruit should abide. I chose you for that. I appointed you for that. So then what does it mean today to be called by Jesus? Well, he calls us to faith in himself. He calls us to come, all who are weary and heavy laden, come who, who, those who are sinners and those who are realizing they're spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, come, come and believe. He calls us to that. He, he summons us. And that's the thing, is oftentimes Jesus uses the phrase, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Are your ears able to hear the summons? If they are, you will come. Some ears are deaf. There is a time in our life where we don't hear the summons. Someone might tell us the good news of the gospel a hundred times and our ears are plugged. We do not have ears to hear. Our hearts are hard as stone. Our spiritual eyes are blind. But when Jesus says, if you have ears to hear, you hear the call to come, you're summoned to me. Come to me. Be free. Be forgiven. Be mine. Have eternal life. So he calls us to faith in himself. We, we see in ourselves and we recognize this new desire to be at peace with God. It makes no sense prior to that, prior to Jesus calling me and, and changing my heart. But we come. We respond. We, we do recognize we need to be at peace with him. That there, there is a chasm between us and God that we have made and there's no way we can get back. So he calls us, come. And if we look to our own effort, we know it's impossible. But then he says, come to me. Jesus says, come to me. Be mine. Believe in me. Be reconciled to God through myself. He calls us to come and respond. And then he calls us, once we're there, to go out and serve in his name. To extend that same calling to others. Because the interesting thing is, the call of God and Jesus to you likely went through a person, whether it was through the scripture that somebody gave you a Bible and was praying for you, or whether someone told you about Jesus, called you to come, believe in him. He uses people in this calling, in this uh, verbal and, and vocal calling. Romans chapter 10, right, in verse 17 says, faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So, and also in Romans chapter 10, there's where it talks about, well, how can we believe in the one that we've not heard of? And then it says, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. So God, then when he calls us to himself in Christ, then he also calls us to go out. He sends us out in Jesus' name. So he went up this mountain. He called to him those he desired. And they came to him. They came to him. I don't know for you in your life when, when, when Jesus called you, if, if it was a, a black and white moment or if it took years of him chiseling away at your heart. What was his calling to you like? Did you hear him and ignore? Did you push away? When he says, come, be forgiven, be mine, be free, be new. How was it for you? Don't ever forget that because as you think about others who you know who don't yet know Christ, think about what might God be doing on them? 
And is he chiseling away? Is he slowly morphing their hearts? Is there going to be a radical situation change? Or am I going to call them to this healer man? And they might miss their sin problem altogether. So we'd be vastly aware of how God calls us and know that it wasn't calling us to a healing, but he called us to be uh, spiritually whole. So as we're called, and then we're called to go out, as these disciples we'll see are called to go, we have to think about how he did that in us and for us and to us. He came, they came, and then verse 14 says, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might, a couple of things. Number one, so that they might be with him. He called them so they might be with him. He didn't just call them to a mission, say, hey, I've given you a stamp of approval. I kind of want nothing to do with you. You're an annoying fisherman. See ya. Instead, he called them to be with him, to be in relationship with him, to, to walk with him, to be taught with him. He called them into relationship as he calls us into relationship. He called them first to be with him. And then second, uh, as it says there in verse 14, that he might send them out to preach. He called them to be with him in relationship, and then he called them to be sent out to preach the gospel, to repeat the message, to extend. And so it's interesting because you think if the goal was repetition and spread, why did he only pick 12? Why not say, okay, you hundred, come on over here. I'm going to have you walk with me and, and, and learn with me so that I might send you all hundred out. He only called 12 for this special task at first. Called out to be with him and, he might, and they might preach. And verse 15 says, and to have authority to cast out demons. To when the demons would come and, and try to call out on Jesus, he silenced them. Silenced them, cast them out, put them out. Um, he gave them a job to do exactly what he had done. He called his disciples then to do. So then if, if you have been called out by Jesus, what has he appointed you to? He appointed them to, to preach in a specific time and a place. He appointed them to, uh, to exercise spiritual authority. So what has he appointed you to? Have you ever thought about that? If he's called me out, what has he appointed me to? What has he said I should do? In 1 Peter 2.9, it says, You are a people of his own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He made you a people for his own possession to be with him, so that you may proclaim his excellencies. Proclaim his excellencies. What in Jesus is excellent? What in God is excellent? Do you know it? Do you know it well? Do you know it in your heart? What is excellent about him? Proclaim it. That's what he's called you to do. It. Proclaim it. You don't have to be an official preacher or in a ministry of any sort. But if he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, you see his excellencies. And so you proclaim it. Tell others that they may be encouraged in their faith if they're already a Christian. Or if they're not yet a Christian, they may begin to, uh, if God's chiseling away, they may say, that is beautiful. What he, what he is, who he is, what he does. Your job, you've been appointed to proclaim his excellencies. In 1 Peter 4, verse 10 and 11, it says, as each has received a gift, 
If you're in Christ, you've received a gift from him. He says, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. As he's given you a gift, he's given you abilities, he's given you passions and strengths and time and money, whatever you have, use it to serve one another. God has given you his grace in various ways. It's not the same as the person beside you, but he's given you unique um, things, unique gifts that you might use them for his glory because to him belongs the glory. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. So the question as we come is realizing if Christ has called us to himself, what has he appointed us to? What has he appointed you to? Take, a, take stock of the gifts and the passions and the abilities that he's given you. Take stock of the people around you that that you have trust built with. Take stock of that, because that's what he's appointed you to, to make his excellencies known there and through that gifting and through that way. It's incredible to think that he called these 12, including Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, and he allowed him to be with him, near him, one of the close, one, one that he loved, one that he walked with. And yet, each of these men, in their various ways, served him, or in Judah's case, did not. The question is, for us, is, has he called you to himself? And have you answered? And if you have, and, and you've believed in, in Christ and faith, then you ask the next question, well, what is he appointed me to? What can I do for him? And not that he needs anything. Like I said, Jesus could have healed the crowd from the boat. Jesus could do all things in your life and in your family and in this community without you, but he wants you to participate. He wants you to be with him. And so what has he appointed you to? It's an important question for us to ask as we consider our lives, as we consider what it means to also for us to be called as a disciple of Jesus. We are near him. We are with him. We are one of his very own. So then what privileges do we uh, utilize in this life? In being one of Jesus's. It's an incredible privilege. And, and it's a hard task because we are still plagued with selfishness. <laughs> That's often what, what hinders me from serving others is my own selfishness with my time and my uh, anything that I have. So we ought to know what, what hinders us from serving. But we also ought to know where we should be serving. Where we should be um, pursuing relationships so that we can Proclaim God's excellencies to those people. If we've been called by him to be forgiven and made new, we should be calling others. In 1 Corinthians, it tells us we have the, if we've been reconciled to God, we have the ministry of reconciliation. If God has reconciled you to himself, if he has made your relationship right, you have that same privilege of declaring that to others. Don't you want to be made right with God? And there will be people who do not have ears to hear and they'll say, I have no interest in that. But there will be some who will surprise you and say, tell me more. What a joy 
to get that day, to get that opportunity to proclaim his excellencies. You don't need to be a, 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 an orator. You don't need to have great speech. You need to describe what God has done in your own heart, what he's doing at you, for you day by day, how he's chiseling away the things that you hate about yourself, the, the sin that plagues you, and how he's working something new in you. But through it all, he loves you. He sustains you. He's given you a hope that is unshakable because of what Christ has accomplished. And so each day as we live in light of what the gospel is to us, may we uh, figure out what we've been appointed to and serve him in that way. Let's pray. Well, God, thank you for, for Jesus and just how he allowed the crowd to be there, allowed them to be near to him, to even to use him. He sacrificed much of himself uh, just for the sake of that crowd that day. And, and we're so thankful for that. We, may we also live that way. And we also are just so thankful that um, you called specific disciples here originally and then us individually. For each one of us who has heard you calling us by name, you know us, you know our sins, you know our struggles. But you also know that we recognize our dependence on you. Thank you for giving us the faith to believe. Thank you for helping us each day. And we pray that we would um, have our eyes open to opportunities. That we would be aware of the opportunities to which you've appointed us. And that we would take them, um, yeah, we just take advantage of them and, and use them. Because, God, we don't want to waste a moment. Uh, because we want you to be glorified in our lives and in the life of everyone we know. Thank you so much for this time and for your word. We pray that you would encourage each one of us as we part from this time. In Christ's name, amen.